0: All Hey, kia ora to you, and again, warm welcome. Uh, my watch says 7:51, so we've got plenty of time. <laughs> All right, we're in the parables. We've been looking at Jesus and his uh, parables. We have mainly been looking at kingdom parables, uh, antidotes to kingdom misunderstandings, I guess you would call it. A lot in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, "You have heard it said, but I say unto you," because. People had this idea, this particular perspective of how things were going to work. Uh, a lot of the, the kingdom parables are, are essentially a you've heard it said, but I say under you reality. Oh, uh, you think the kingdom of God's going to look like this swords and buildings? And, well, let me tell you, about a mustard seed. Uh, so, there, there are these parables that kind of certainly uh, serve to flip upside down one's expectations so they're antidotes to kingdom misunderstandings but uh, a lot of the other parables about grace and and what is grace and what does grace look like so we're in a grace parable today Uh, firstly though some reoccurring feedback in regard to some of my sermons Um, you should have more subtle references to monty python so just uh, that's just that's a that's a reoccurring one that comes up so so i weave Monty Python in there. It's not because I'm a genius. It's because I'm a very naughty boy. Uh, but but that that comes up a lot. Like could you could you put some more Monty Python in there? Um, you oh, I love it how you sneak in Jerry Seinfeld's 1998. I'm on telling you for the last time comedy show. So again if you're familiar with that CD from 1998, um, that's the one where the the businessmen are like they can't work out why why do we can't they just give us normal faucets at the airport. You know, what are we gonna do? Like splash water all over the place? Just give us a tap, so a little bit of that. Um, nanya is not the Bible. That comes up a lot as well. I, I feel that's passive aggressive, so I ignore that. Um, you don't give out enough wine. So there you go, so there you go. You don't give out enough wine. It's like, yeah, okay. Um, so these are all feedbacks that I've had multiple occasions, not one. Um, keep mocking mātua. We love it how you mock mātua. So that, that comes back again and again. Uh, but I have had recent uh, feedback saying, it's been great how you've been tying the parables into our story. Keep tying the parables into our story. So I thought, okay, we'll, we'll tie it into your story then, because I was going to kind of go in a different direction, but we'll, we'll tie that in. So I think up on the, the next slide, I think we've got the little arcs that we've been using in terms of trying to make sense of our own story and, and journey. So we'll do that again today. Uh, one of the things humans have mastered the ability to do uh, over many thousands of years, is to really miss, mess things up. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever noticed that, but it's, that's one of the things that humans are, are brilliant at. Uh, so we're going to unpack that a little bit. Um, humans are better at messing things up than earthquakes and tsunamis and, tsunamis and cyclones. If, if we're honest about it, uh, and natural disasters do a pretty good job of wreaking havoc wherever they go, but it seems that actually humans are, are, they can wreck more havoc than than tsunamis can can wreck. Uh, in his book Unapologetic, which is a defence of the Christian faith, there's a British author Francis Spufford, and uh, he has a a phrase that I'm going to um, use. In my, I'm not going to use it throughout my sermon, but I, I want to introduce it. I don't. I'm not introducing it to be controversial or. Um, Uh, inappropriate, but I think he just, he captures something that's worth noting. Uh, And he talks throughout his book about the human propensity to, and then his words, F things up. That's what he goes, the the human propensity to mess, uh, uh, to F things up. You could say mess things up, but he he uses the F word just enough in his book to kind of like, is this, a is this a theological book that I'm reading here? You've, you've used that word a few times, and it, and it, it jars me. Uh, N.T. Wright doesn't use that language. Uh, but if, we, uh, if, we're, if, we're, if we're honest and open, it's like, yeah, well, that, that is what it is. And sometimes we just need to kind of, yeah, but humans have mastered that over their, their long history. We're, we're pretty good at doing that. Um, And and he uses that line throughout his book. Uh, Mostly he writes H-P-T-F-T-U, so he uses his letters. But it's just in there enough to, like, yep, oh, yep, there it is again kind of thing. Um, Funnily enough, though, as I said, it's it's average Joe that is actually far better at messing things up. Um, You think about terrorism, for example. Terrorism does mess things up. On average in America, 16 people die a year as a result of terrorism. 16 people die per year. Uh, 11,737 Americans are shot and killed by fellow Americans each year. So when you compare 16 to you know, 11,000, we're not comparing apples with apples here kind of thing. It's like, you know, it, it's actually everyday humans. So you, you can have natural disasters and you can have terrorist attacks, but average Joe actually can mess things up pretty, pretty well as well. And his point is simply that neither extreme, he writes that neither extremism or nature, for all the habit they wreck in their grand and sensational manner are as destructive in our world as ordinary people. Ordinary people and their ability to mess things up. Sometimes it's employers taking advantage of employees, squeezing every last ounce of energy out of them or belittling them or bullying them, Uh, making the maximum but paying the minimum. Sometimes it's employee. Sorry, employers. Sometimes it's employees sticking it to the man, finding ways to cut corners, to take it easy, to knock off early, to skim off the top, to steal money or steal time or steal trust. Sometimes it's husbands having affairs or falling out of love or ceasing to make an effort or giving up altogether and walking away. Sometimes it's wives that can do all of those same things. Sometimes it's the way people mess things up and the, the things that they say or the things that they do. Sometimes it's the way mess, people mess things up and the things that they don't say, the things that they don't do. There's, there's a variety of ways that, that we can mess up our lives and the lives of others. Sometimes it's strangers hurting strangers. Sometimes it's the people closest to us hurting us or us hurting the people closest to us. Sometimes it's Difficult to untangle the situation and really figure out what went wrong in the first place and where it all started, simply to say it's all a mess now and I can't really put my finger on what it was, but we find ourselves with the, the arc of the story having dipped down. Uh, any and all of the above create unbearable feelings, sense of grief or despair or anger or frustration or pain. By very definition, those kinds of things feel too much to bear, too much to bear. Uh, Czechoslovakian priest Thomas Heilig, he writes in his book, Night of the Confessor, that with our hurts and crises, those things that are too much to bear, there is an invitation to bring our crises into the light in order to pass through them and be remolded into a state of greater maturity and wisdom in Christ. There's an invitation to bring the heartache, the pain, the distress, the disease, the disorientation, to bring that into the light and to pass through that in Christ to be molded and shaped to become a more holy, whole, wholesome human being. Of course, though, we're not so quick to bring it into the light. Bring your unbearable feelings into the light. It's like, that's unbearable! I want to not have anything to do with my unbearable feelings. Bringing it into the light makes it all the more acute, all the more obvious, all the more painful. So we walk a different path. We throw ourselves into things that distract. Netflix or novels or sports or sex or something that's going to distract us from the unbearable feelings. Uh, we throw ourselves into things that numb. It can be alcohol, it can be drugs. Other crises it can be other crises that, this is so painful, it's too much to bear. If I stuff this up, then I don't have to think about that thing. It's like, now you've got to think about that thing. And, and crises can, can lead to crises. We throw ourselves into the pursuit of accomplishment. I'm just going to forget all of this garbage and I'm going to achieve this academically or achieve this in my business or make this amount of money or climb this mountain or, or win this medal or whatever it might be. And that'll just distract me from actually having to navigate these other things. We throw ourselves at times into various noble endeavors rather than dealing with the, the mess. It's oh, I'm going to become a protester. That, that, that all. I'm going to throw myself into that noble endeavour, because it's, it's easier to protest than what it is to deal with mess. Or charity, I'm going, to, I'm going to throw myself into charity. I'm going to help as many people as I can, rather than kind of work on what I need to work on, or religion, or rescuing. We throw ourselves into anything, and it can be conscious, it can be subconscious, we don't even realise that we're doing it. But we're doing that to suppress, rather than expose the pain and heartache that we carry whether because of the propensity of other humans to mess up or our own propensity to mess things up, we, we try to hide it and get away from it. And inevitably, there are arcs in our story where everything falls apart. So the, in time, the, the parable that we're going to look at this morning with the arcs of our story, there are inevitably moments in our story where the arc dips down below that line. So if you find yourself in that moment this morning, or if you're aware of others in that moment this morning, uh, hopefully the parable that we're going to look at, it's a parable about grace. Hopefully there's something that is helpful to you this morning. A property manager was once caught out by his boss. He was claiming revenue that wasn't his. He'd been negligent in managing his employer's property with uh, due diligence and integrity. He'd stolen a little bit here and there over... Time. Not a lot one hit, but it all added up. He had a good thing going, until suddenly he didn't have a good thing going anymore, and the boss found out about that. And Jesus talks about this in Luke sixteen, verse one to nine. Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. So manager or or a steward, some translations talk about. Uh, The rich man's a property owner. The manager or the steward is the go-between between between the tenants and the land owner. Uh, His his job is to uh, negotiate contracts with the tenants. On behalf of the landowner, to um, organize—he's paid a salary to do this—but he's going to—he's going to organize the 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 lease of the land, the use of the land. Okay, it's a, its an olive vineyard uh, well you can have the olive vineyard for the next five years, uh, but each year you you need to pay us a hundred. Barrels of oil, of olive oil. That'll be that'll be what we're charging you. So you pay us a hundred barrels of olive oil, and anything else you make off the land is yours to do whatever. Or uh, it's uh, fields of wheat, or bushels of wheat. I didn't look up bushels. I don't know. If a bushel could be big or a little. I don't know all my ancient Near Eastern measurements off by heart. I have to be honest about that. So you you, you lease the field, but you owe us a hundred bushels of wheat, and you ancient Near Eastern. Uh, measurement experts, you're like, well, oh, that's only that much, he's really got that wrong, that's not a lot of wheat for a year, but anyway, 100 bushels of wheat for the year, and, and so they carry on. And So the steward, the manager, it's his job to negotiate that, to sort out deals on behalf of the, the landowner, and he, he's paid a salary to do that. Uh, it seems, though, that the steward was skimming off the top, maybe saying, oh, it's 110 barrels of oil, And the contract's written up as 100 barrels of oil. Somehow he gets 10 barrels, which he can sell on the side and make himself a little little extra on top of his salary. The landowner finds out, though. When stories have been told like this in an ancient Near Eastern context, everybody kind of knows how the story is going to go, how the story is going to unfold. You know with kids how um, you go, you want to read them a new story? Because you've read them the other story, like, 20 times, like please, can we not do that story? Can we do a different story? No, oh, I want that story. It's like, how can you possibly want that story? Like it's but they like they like the rhythms of the stories that we know. And we're actually all the same. We we all like, you know, stories, the same kinds of stories, just told with different characters. And if you if you think about it, like, I don't know, I didn't think about this beforehand, but most of your action movies are all exactly the same story just with different characters and different settings and that one was in space and this one is in a forest and that one was in an urban context but they're exactly the same and they're all looking down and out but then the hero steps up and they move forward like yeah all your love stories or your whatever oh it's like they didn't know and then she thought and he thought and then it turned out and that all by the end that all worked out kind of We, we like these stories that repeat ancient near eastern context they like these stories where like Justice comes. They like the stories where like the, the the bad person is gonna get the bad stuff. You know, the story just before this is the prodigal son. The prodigal son says that he wants the inheritance. That's like saying to your dad, I wish you were dead. Says the audience. They're hoping that the son is gonna get what is coming to him. And what is coming to him is not a share of his inheritance, he gets kicked out right then and there. But the father goes, "All right, here's your share of the inheritance." They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa! No, no, no! That's don't do that. Story carries on a little bit later, and he ends up in a pigsty. And as a Jewish person, they're disgusting animals. So the audience is like, "Yay! It's all turned out how it should turn out," kind of thing. So we've got this story here of this unjust steward that's being told. Oh, this guy! How's this going to unfold? How's this going to go? But with the parables of Jesus, there's always a twist or turn along the way. There's always a what? A what, what the heck? What, what's that's not how the story is meant to go. That's not what is meant to happen. The first surprise is that the manager isn't just cast out straight away. Um, the power dynamics there is like there's no trade union. There's no like, oh, there's been some allegations. Well, wow, innocent until proven guilty. Let us uh, all sit down and we'll, we'll negotiate this. It's like rumors of this or that. Or the other thing. You, we'll get another manager. You're gone. Goodbye. No, thank you. And the landowner doesn't say that. The landowner says, well, look, you can't be my manager, but I'm going to organize, you're going to have to give an account of yourself. Let's sit down and talk about this. It's like, oh, what's happening? What's happening there? He's not cast out anymore. He's still the steward. There's, there's a moment. There's this, there's this liminal space where he's not gone, and yet he's still there. It's like, hang on, he shouldn't be allowed that. There's a hint of mercy. There's a hint of generosity there, and I think this is key to understanding the story. The manager, he's got to give an account to himself, he's going to have to find other work or he's going to be in prison, something's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. There's a little window of opportunity. The manager said to himself, what will I do now? Now that my master is taking the position away from me, I am not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. The manager is a manager it goes without saying that he's not like, oh, I'll talk to the landover down the road and see if he could take me on with his manager. It's like, oh yeah, have you got any references from your previous manager? Uh, no, no, I don't have any references from the previous manager. So the options are manual labor or begging. And this manager is like, well, I'm too old to dig holes and i too got too much, uh, too much ego to, to beg. I, I, I'm in a predicament. What am I going to do? It doesn't have a lot of, Options. When you mess things up in life, inevitably, inevitably, it doesn't lead to wide open spaces. Some of the problems that we find ourselves in at times are because we thought that something was going to lead us to a. Wide, oh, here's a shortcut that'll lead us into a wide open space. You know the classic line: "It's the grass is greener on the other side of the hill," other side of the fence. Uh, I think I can cut a corner here and that'll lead to wide open spaces of freedom and possibility and new life and I can't wait. And so you, you cut a corner and there's a compromise and something happens and inevitably it doesn't lead to wide open spaces. It leads to constricted, confined, narrowed down options. Too old to start over, embarrassing to go back to this, that or the other thing. That's why people throw themselves into that which would distract or numb because I don't know what to do now. It's, I'm, I'm in a constricted space, and it's unbearable. I'm just going to find a way to numb there. You mess things up, it's ultimately disempowering. It's an embarrassment. It's not a pleasant feeling. Nevertheless, the manager devises a plan. I've decided what to do so that when I'm dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. Uh, the assumption of the story is that the guy's guilty. There's nothing in the story that would indicate the manager is not guilty, he, he, he's, he's guilty. So summoning his master's debts, one by one, by uh, debtors one by one, he asked first, how much do you owe my master? He answered, 100 jugs of olive oil. He said to them, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 50. So they're gonna re-sign the documents, the contract, and the steward will, will sign it off, kind of thing. Instead of 100, we'll make it 50. And how much do you owe, he replied, 100 containers of wheat, he said. We'll take your bill and we'll, we'll make it 80. Knocks 50% off the first contract, knocks 20% off the second contract. The manager has this small window of opportunity. He's not been thrown into jail. He's still to give an account of himself. So while everyone thinks he's still the manager, he acts and behaves as, he is th- as if he is the manager and, and organizes a few quick deals on the side. Tenants are very happy about this. If your landlord came to you and said, hey, how much are you paying in rent? Whatever it is, like, shall we have that? Yes, we shall. Thank you, kind of thing. Brilliant. Uh, so that, that, this, this unfolds. 50% off, 20% off. The tenants assume that the manager, the steward, has authority. They assume he has authority. They assume that he is acting on behalf of the landowner. They are naturally overjoyed at the turn of events how good is this the steward is ha- held in high regard for negotiating such a marvelous reduction in cost this steward this manager what a legend he's negotiated a sweet deal this is this is a good guy the reductions are out of the blue maybe 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 the steward talks about how he just you know it's getting close to christmas and he's talked old mate into a few little deals and uh, just wanted to bless you this year they're like you're a good guy, and your boss is a good guy. This is, this is outstanding. Uh, it's a little bit like the, the factory foreman who's organized a generous Christmas bonus for the workers. Uh, he gets all the credit for it, but it didn't cost him anything. He, he negotiated it. It's like, yeah, no worries, guys. And they're like, thank you. It's like the boss paid, but the foreman organized it. Well, he's a legend now. Keep him on. Even if he gets fired, he'll be well regarded in the village for h- having organized some sweet deals. That said, though, the landowner is held in high regard for being such a generous man. Such a fine gentleman to to offer such discounts. What a a legend. The steward then gathers up these freshly amended accounts and takes them to the master. The master is reviewing these altered accounts. But even as he does so, he's likely aware that there's a great celebration unfolding in the local village. He's reviewing these accounts, these great discounts. 50% off, 80% off, 70% off, 10% off. What's going on here? But he's also where I think in the village, there's probably some people partying about this, celebrating this. Word is getting around of his generosity. The most noble of men to have ever rented land in the district. Finds himself in a little bit of a bind. He's only really got two options. You can keep silent and accept the praise that's being showered upon him allow the steward to ride high on the moment of uh exultation and, and praise that he's experiencing um have well, you probably need to keep the steward on because you can't like have a steward you know do legend deals and everyone's happy and then like we're firing him it's like Whoa, what happened there it's like oh, we'll keep him on so you can just basically kind of let it let it roll well, secondly, you can go back to the tenants and explain it's all a mistake. The steward is a crook. He's been dismissed. Those contracts, are, they're not legitimate. He didn't have the authority to sign them. You still owe the full amount of money. You still owe the hundred. You still owe the hundred. No, there's no discount for you. No, close this party down. There's nothing for you to celebrate. You still owe this amount, that amount, and this amount. The problem is if he does this, if he gate crashes the party, suddenly he's looked upon as being stingy and mean and tight. He's in, a, he's in a dilemma. In the ancient Near East, to, to be generous is an important quality of a nobleman, of a rich man, of somebody high in standing in society. Be is, is to be generous is to be looked upon as admirable. To be stingy is to be held in disdain. And suddenly he's the most generous man in the village. Is he going to roll with that or is he going to put things right and actually I'm a little stingier than you imagined? He's in a bind. Generous is an important quality, but so too is sound judgment and right accounting and wise decision making and the punishment of the wicked. These are all important values too, but he finds himself having to weigh up the values and the situation and the ethical dilemma of what do you put first. He reflects for a moment and he turns to his steward and commends him. This is a major what the heck moment in the story. He turns to the steward and he's like, yeah, well done, mate. Well played. Good good stuff. Well played. His master commended the dishonest... Hang on. He commended the dishonest manager? Because he had acted shrewdly. And then like a footnote, Matthew includes Jesus adding, for the children of this age are more shrewd in their dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. Commends the steward and says, well... The master ends up paying the full price for the steward manager's salvation, the discount to tenants, the forgiveness of the steward, the reinstatement. Like I said, he can't very well fire him now. All of the mess that the steward has created, the master ends up paying for the whole lot, sorting it out, fixing it up. He he, he takes takes the, the bill, essentially, and sorts it out himself. In a backhanded way, the, the actions of the steward are kind of a compliment to the master. The, steward, the steward's course of action was to cast everything upon the reputation of the master as being generous and gracious. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to play, a, play, a, play, a, play my cards in a way that relies on this master being generous, generous and gracious. If he's not, it's not going to work out for me pretty sure I can, I can count on his generosity and graciousness, so I'm going I'm to play my cards in such a way as to rely entirely on that. He risked everything on his presumption, his belief that the master deemed generosity be of greater value than economics, that the master would put greater value on generosity than justice, that the master would put a greater value on generosity than punishment played his cards that, well, the master's going to have to weigh up some values here, and I'm pretty sure grace and generosity are going to trump judgment and punishment and tallying the accounts correctly. What's the kingdom of God like? What's grace like? What's grace like? Grace is like being in a world where generosity overflows, even where generosity is not deserved. What's grace like? Grace is like generosity. kingdom of God is like a, a world where generosity overflows, even where grace and generosity is not deserved. It's kind of what makes grace, grace. We hope we all know that. It's kind of what makes grace, grace, is that it's not deserved, and yet it comes. Generosity that's not deserved. It's my brother's 40th. We brought him a lovely... Gift. I mean, you might not have liked it. He liked it. It was an SM9 tightless Avaki wedge. It's the wedge that the pros use on the tour. He really appreciated that. It was easy to be generous in that moment. Generous in that moment. It's my brother's 40th kind of thing. It's easy to be generous to. It's, his, it's my brother. He's a legend. It's his 40th birthday. We'll buy him an incredibly flash gift. Oh, I don't wander up to strangers and buy them flash golf clubs. <laughs> Where it's deserved, we're quick to go. The kingdom of God is this place where generosity and grace overflow, even when it's not deserved. Where the crooked are invited to entrust their lives to the generosity of the king. What's the kingdom of God like? Ah, it's this place where even the crooked, the dishonest, are invited to entrust their lives to the generosity of the king. Oh, If we're honest, that's very troubling. We like it in regards to ourselves. We want to live in that and know that, but we don't really want the dishonest and the crooked to know generosity and grace. We want them to know justice and accountability and and right judgment, and we want to balance the books. It's troubling, if we're honest. It goes against most of our sensibilities at least for what we want to give to those people, for what we want for ourselves, it very much is in line with that which we want to receive in life. But that which we want to spread around, it's it's disorientated. Church has struggled with this for 2,000 years. The generosity-grace thing, that's hard. Goes against the grain in a world enamored by balancing the books. We live in a world enamored by balancing the books. Generosity and grace goes against that grain. Generosity and grace is not the balancing of the books. It's the letting off of the debtor. It's disorientating. It's troubling. Yet the invitation of the parable, when we find ourselves at the bottom of the bottom, our propensity to mess things up royally, Having stuffed up our lives, having messed up the lives of others, having hurt people or been hurt, or any combination of all of the above. The parable is an invitation not to distraction. It's not an invitation into that which numbs. I know what, said the crooked steward. I'm going to go to the pub and eat five, uh, drink five bottles of wine. It's like it's not, it's not in the parable. That's not what the invitation is. It's not an invitation to pursue accomplishment or the balancing of the books, but to throw ourselves upon grace, to throw ourselves upon generosity. The twist in the tale for the disciples is the way that the Shrewd manager entrusts his life to grace and generosity, and then grace and generosity comes through. The point of the story is not the cleverness of the steward and his dishonesty. The point is the cleverness of the steward having hit rock bottom. He's not going to dig a hole, not going to hide, not going to numb, not going to escape, but it's going to throw himself under the bus, so to speak, the bus of grace and generosity. Uh, Jesus is telling a parable using a rabbinic teaching method of from, from the light to the heavy. If this is true in the light thing, in the little thing, in the small thing, how much truer is this in the big thing, the weighty thing, the important thing? Um, If the dishonest steward solved his problem by relying on the mercy and the generosity of his master, the children of this age being shrewd, a light thing, a small thing, a story, a parable, how much more will the children of God... Find grace and mercy if they are to throw themselves to the grace and mercy and generosity of God. The heavy thing. The steward is aware of the generosity of his master. How much more should God's children be aware of the generosity of their master? So you mess things up. Your hope is not distraction or manual labor. Dig your way out of the hole, literally. Not begging or parking yourself in a corner and looking miserable and never moving forward in your life. What's your hope when you've messed things up royally? Just to cast yourself upon the grace and generosity of God.